So, uh, yeah, January 8th seminar, and I apologize, I'm a little croaky from a little uh, viral URI that I have for which I've started myself on three broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, not. So, um, Dr. Dr. Pindo Powell here um, uh, has joined Dartmouth first back in 1992 when she came here to do her second ID fellowship after doing her first at UMDNJ um, and uh, overlapped with uh, me for the fellowship. And I can tell you, she was a tough cookie to have as the senior fellow. She kept me in line. <laughs> so, still trying. So, uh, currently, Roshni is Associate Professor of Medicine uh, at Dartmouth in the section of General Internal Medicine. Uh, she's also Associate Dean for Students and Admissions and the Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs in the Department of Medicine, amongst many other things. Uh, she's um, really one of our um, uh, star educators uh, in the um, uh, Geisel School of Medicine. Uh, she's going to speak to us today on chronic medical issues and HIV care. I'm going to slow down because it looks like we're having some electronic challenges here. Um, so I'm uh, going to speak on that to update us on um, management of chronic medical conditions pertinent to the care we provide to our HIV patients uh, since we're engaged with them in longitudinal care. Uh, I need to mention that to receive credit, you must attend 80% of the program. Um, where's Dr. Zuckerman? I understand he's uh, advertised that once you click that button, who would know if you're here for one minute or 80%? Did he click the What's that? It could be, yeah. So um, planning uh, things, we do have to announce that um, Brian Marsh, myself, is a consultant for Gilead Biosciences. Planning committee member had his conflict resolved. I also need control over the content about the products or services of the commercial interest. All other planning committee members and speakers for the program uh, report no financial interest or relationship with any commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. I think that's all I have to say. Oh, we have the pro. We have the pro. Where? minutes to do this. Now it's whittling down. <laughs> but it's okay. I sent the PowerPoint, uh, my PowerPoint to Betsy. There we go. Oh, there we go. because I wasn't paying attention. Um, it is so much fun to be back here, and I'm going to try to do justice to this, although I, I don't know that I can uh, claim success, but we'll see. I love this quote, healing is a matter of time, but sometimes it's a matter of opportunity. We can put screening and healing, and um, that's sort of what 
the idea of the talk is today, that it is an opportunity we have to <coughs> change the course of illness sometimes. So why do I have this here, right? I think in primary care, we live in the grid, all of us. Um, and I think you all are primary care providers for sure. And we make clinical judgments all the time in the face of uncertainty. And to pretend that we do this on the basis of solid evidence all the time is, is a fallacy. And why do I particularly think this topic is fraught with gray? Because there are multiple screening, multiple recommendations from different groups. You can see all the acronyms, the alphabet soup up there. Thank you, Brian. Uh, the USPSTF, which is sort of what I will be talking about a lot today, the United States Preventative Services Task Force, because they synthesize a lot of the data and make these screening recommendations. The ACP American College of Physicians, the American Cancer Society, the American College of Cardiology, and of course the IDSA, a much-loved group to all of you. The other thing about these recs, so it, it, it's... If you think they're at all coordinated, you're wrong, and I'll show it to you. There's millions of recommendations. You've got to take all of them and think about how does that translate into the N of 1 sitting in front of you at any given time. And that's a lot of gray in primary care. The second thing is recommendations from whatever year these um, Suggestions were updated. For instance, the IDSA in HIV care was the last put out in 2013. But that does not account for all the advances in medicine and literature since that time. So every time we, by the time a synthesis document is put out, we have so much more new data that is not incorporated in it. And we constantly struggle with trying to keep abreast. And then the other thing about this using screening tests, as you all know, the one caveat is you should use it in somebody who has a lifespan of about 10 years is the sort of thing that we use. But what the heck does that mean today? 30 years ago when I started practicing medicine, I could literally make that determination with some level of success. Somebody with a third recurrence of metastatic breast cancer, I could make some determination that the person would not be there a year or two from then. Not anymore. I have a patient with third recurrence of metastatic breast cancer who's traveling the world, comes in periodically for a chemo, and is really doing, thankfully, very well. And the same can be said for ovarian cancer and so many others. So it is a moving target. And think about HIV disease and AIDS care. When I practiced it, you see, uh, my first resident uh, fellowship was in UMDNJ in Newark, New Jersey, at the height of the AIDS epidemic. But well, a whole different, a 10-year lifespan then is totally different. So, so many of these reasons, and with that background then, I wanted to try to accomplish these objectives, although I don't know that I will be able to, and anybody can call time when it's, when they're done, when they feel they've had enough. But I wanted to summarize just a few key primary care screening recommendations, describe current guidelines for the treatment of hyperlipidemia, and a new exciting med that I think that's on the horizon that maybe some of you know more than I do, uh, to name uh, the new classes of diabetes medications and recognize their side effects and to recognize bone loss in HIV um, patients and the current recommendations of screening and treatment. And if I'm able to accomplish even a, a tiny bit of this, I'll be happy. So what are my disclosures? I have no conflicts of interest, but I do not claim to be an expert in HIV primary care. You are. And if any one of you in any of these domains knows more than I do, 
feel absolutely free to say, hey, that's not it, and we'll stop and have a discussion on it. Because what I did was review the primary data and evidence base as best as I was able, but having not done the primary research, it's nothing that I can claim to be expert on. I had a great deal of fun putting this together. Richard twisted my arm a bit. I was thinking, why ask me? Maybe ask Peter or you know somebody else um, who practices this on, on a more regular basis. But one of the reasons I say yes to these sorts of things is that I love to teach, and it just allows me to do a deep dive on a subject that I probably would not have otherwise. But no deep dive is as useful or, or helpful than actually taking care of patients, and that's something you all do not need. So with that, let, with that background, um, let me just start. This is like preaching to the choir, my next two slides, which makes the case of why you all invited me here to talk, right? Um, closing the gap increases in life expect expectancy among treated HIV-positive patients in the United States and Canada. A 20-year-old HIV-positive adult, an ART, in the U.S. or Canada is expected to live into the early 70s, a life expectancy approaching that of the general population. And this is so wonderful. This was simply not the case when this all started 30 years ago. Um, and this one again. Um, this chronic illness burden and the quality of life in an aging HIV population. I could have pulled so many of these articles. I just put one there. Um, and basically, to me, this story of HIV, I frequently like to think about, is so much analogous to the story of diabetes. Right? Diabetes, you look at, read about the literature, and see pictures of a diabetic patient beyond the early 19th, 20th century, they look much like the HIV AIDS patients I saw in 1980. And thankfully, that has changed. And this study summary basically says 94% of the sample of community living <coughs> patients aged greater than 50 reported a chronic health condition in addition to HIV, roughly on average two additional conditions. And the highest reported conditions were hypertension, chronic pain, hepatitis, and arthritis. I won't be talking specifically about each one of these. Um, and the last three, I think all of you know very well, that physical and social functioning of these patients with these additional diseases um, is actually what causes them so much um, grief. So I will try in the next, um, whatever, 30, 40 minutes, to highlight these aspects of primary care. Cancer screening a few non-cancer screening issues, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and bone disease. So let's start off with something that's sort of um, uh, quite um, common uh, and has fairly similar, fairly similar recommendations in both HIV and non-HIV populations. And in cases where there are similar similarities and differences, I will try to show both. Now, for cervical cancer screening, this is actually a relatively new USPSTF recommendation for the non-HIV population. Um, HPV vaccine, both for HIV and non-HIV, is recommended for all males and females aged 9 to 26. And in non-HIV, the recommendation is to start pap smears at 21, not earlier, and between 21 and 30 to roughly do them every three years without HPV testing. From age 30 to 65, you can continue every three years, and if the patient with some shared decision-making decides that they would like to lengthen that interval to Q5 years, then you do the HPV with it. And if the PAP and HPV are normal, you can do it every five years. 
Um, recommendation, of course, is to stop at 65 if they have three negative pap smears in 10 years or two negative pap HPV in 10 years. I put the star, just like the SQ in this slide, uh, uh, on the last point, and that is I think even in uh, general medicine, the transgender, especially female to male, uh, need pap smears, and they are not getting them as often as they should. And so this is a recommendation I think we need to, in primary care, uh, pay attention to. In uh, HIV care, so the last updated recommendations uh, for HIV care is the IDSA 2017 <coughs> guidelines. HPV again recommended that that's a similar half of the initiation of care and six months after and then yearly. And then if they have ASCUS or ASCHDIL, right? So, so it's atypical cells, squamous cells, undetermined significance, or high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, they should undergo colposcopy and biopsy immediately. Now, this is the official recommendation. However, in a patient who has atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance, and we in primary care see this a lot, it can happen because of some actually relatively benign things like menopause and the shift in estrogen will cause the cells to look a little funky or undifferentiated. It can happen in, with patients with infection or it can happen in early cancer lesions. So it really behooves us when we get an ASCIS PAP report to look at the pathology report a little more carefully and read it. And there are definitely things in the HIV, and this by the way is fairly um, good recommendation, and I'll come back to this. But it's, there's recent literature, um, HIV literature, that states that in patients who have just ASCIS, not HGSIL, those should go to colposcopy directly. But those with ASCIS, maybe HPV screening can be used to differentiate who should be seen right away by colposcopy and who can wait and be screened again. So my, my recommendation would be to look at the pathology report carefully, see if it's sort of a menopausal change or if it's infection change, um, and then consider whether HPV should be done. This is, however, not an official recommendation. For those uh, who have had a hysterectomy, again, all, whether it's non-HIV or HIV, depends upon why the hysterectomy was done. If the hysterectomy was done because of atypical cells or malignancy, then the recommendation actually is to do a vaginal pap smear because vaginal SIL does, um, is, is a real disease and can occur. And this is good, good quality evidence. What about anal cancer? So I, I, I want a show of hands. Does anybody do anal pap smears for screening for anal cancer? No? <laughs> okay. Interestingly, um, I mean, I, you all know this, Anal uh, cancers are 28 more times common in HIV-infected patients due to the co-infection with the oncogenic viruses, especially HPV 16 and 18. Um, and according to the IDSA 2013 guidelines, anal pap tests are recommended for all men who have sex with men, women with receptive anal sex, and those with genital warts. However, it is a weak recommendation, moderate quality, because although the sensitivity is pretty high, the specificity is low, and so a negative test should not reassure you that nothing is going on. There is a lot in the literature that I found, actually, that suggests um, that in this very, very high-risk group, 
that screening does pick up and will improve the morbidity and mortality from anorectal cancers. And so I have a feeling that the subsequent IDSA guidelines will recommend this a little more, not recommend, will really say that this needs to be done in this high-risk uh, cohort. What about non-AIDS-defining cancers in HIV patients? You all know this better than anybody else. HIV uh, it definitely uh, increases your risk of cancer. It is uh, oncogenic in so many ways. It uh, definitely is angiogenic, and therefore increasing the risk of not only growth of tumor, but spread of tumor. HIV coexists or co-infects is often co-infected with a lot of oncogenic viruses, HPV we talked about, HCV is another one. And then the effects of the combination of effects, HIV in a smoker, for instance. So we do know that, that this is going to be a big problem. And many, many studies that I looked at, actually many articles show that even if you don't ignore the top ones, the HPV effect of anal cancers and um, lymphoma and liver with uh, HCV, the others, there definitely seems to be an increased risk of all incidence of all these cancers in the HIV population uh, compared to the general population. Just a reminder of the cancer statistics of the most commonly occurring cancers in males and females and the estimated deaths. And so lung, prostate, colorectal, they're really up there. And we, got, we have to start paying attention to this population as it ages. So let's take each one of them uh, quickly. Lung cancer. So this is a relatively, again, new recommendation by the USPSTF. Lung cancer screening is not recommended for average risk persons, but the um, National Lung Cancer Screening Trial, of which Dartmouth was a site, uh, Bill Black, one of our radiologists, uh, led the efforts in this regard, uh, really showed that there was a 20% reduction in lung cancer deaths at 6.5 years. And so in this particular cohort of patients, um, right there, it is recommended, and Medicare will pay for annual low-dose CT scans. And who are these patients? Patients who are uh, the age 55 to 79 years, have a 30-pack year smoking history, have either uh, still smoking or quit within the last 15 years. And it is recommended that these patients get the low-dose CT every year, stop when the quit date is greater than 15 years, or comorbidity affects survival and you're not going to be able to send them to surgery anyway. Um, again, once Medicare starts paying for this, then um, you know, usually we get some traction. But again, this particular screening recommendation is not um, uh, incorporated into a lot of primary care practices as of yet. I have a question. For, the prim for HIV primary care that you see, do you have a health maintenance staff that comes up as to what is due you do? Is it the same as the primary care one? Which doesn't make sense. Okay. That's Peter? Uh, we have <laughs> access to it. Not everybody looks at it, but we have not adjusted. We, we haven't taught people how to do the modifications to the specific items that we would do for HIV. And we've talked about building those up. Actually, Shoshana Ward has worked with some people to work on some of those things yeah. for Cops Mirror. Because talking about them is one thing, right? But the truth of the matter is another reason we don't do this is not because we're bad people. Obviously, there's data. We know that there's data, and it's useful. And the question is remembering this. 
And so those health maintenance tasks have been incredibly useful in primary care in keeping up with some of the stuff. So that is something you might, or at least for certain ones. Just a pitch. Um, colorectal cancer, um, another really common uh, cancer recommended for the average risk person to start screening in primary care at age 50, unless they have a family history of colorectal cancer or inflammatory bowel disease. Colorectal cancer is another one of those interesting cancers that we're now learning the genetics more um, than ever before. And it's, it's really kind of fun, whether it is a uh, sort of chromosomal issue, a microsatellite instability issue, mismatch repair issue, or um, some other kind. And the ACP and the American College of Gastroenterology differ slightly with the USPSTF recommendation with a fairly solid uh, data to go along with it and suggest that in certain populations, especially in African Americans, we should really start screening a little earlier, 40 to 50, because they are usually, they have a, a higher incidence of these um, uh, cancers and a higher stage adjusted mortality. So it is, it acts somewhat differently and it might be because of the genetics of these kinds of cancers in that population. Um, the recommendation for colorectal cancer, like all others, is stop screening when life expectancy is less than 10 years or at age 85. Um, and there are three basic option, uh, options for screening, a colonoscopy every 10 years. That's sort of the preferred one because it's both a diagnostic and a procedural. Uh, if you find a polyp, you're right there, take it out. A flexing every five years, and I'll come back to why I said avoided HIV. Um, or these newer generation fecal occult testing, uh, the FOBT and the FIT test, the fecal immunoassay test. So why fle flexing every five years is a recommendation, should be offered to most patients in primary care if they don't want to go through the whole um, uh, process of a colonoscopy. But in HIV, it is suggested we don't go for the screening option because um, most of the cancers in HIV are supposedly occur or can occur on the right side of the colon, which will be completely missed by a flexible sigmoidoscopy. The newer uh, FIT tests are really quite good. They have a much better sensitivity for screening than the older tests. The older tests were about 50% sensitive, not very good. The newer, 50, uh, the newer FIT tests are about 87% sensitive and are actually much better because they only detect blood in the lower, uh, large intestine of colon and they're not affected by diet and medications and, and such. So they are pretty good and should be offered. Sometimes when a patient says, no, they don't want a colonoscopy, we don't offer anything else. And I really think there are other things we should offer. Breast cancer. The longer the list of guidelines, the more complex you know the issue is and the harder the discussion of the shared decision making that we have with patients. The, the, let's go to the last one first. The IDSA, the last 2013 guidelines states, offer annually starting at 50. I don't, don't think anybody would argue with that. The question is annually. Uh, for regular primary care practice, the USPSTF really now states that there is no strong mortality benefit for yearly screening or even biennial screening or even sporadic screening between the ages of 40 to 49 in the average risk person. And that from 50 to 74, biennial screening is recommended. 
Um, and you can see all the others there. The, so one might ask, okay, from 40 to 50, if we don't go with mammography, can we offer something else? Do, should we be teaching patients to do self-breast examinations? And men, so, you know, sometimes when things are free, even though the recommendation is don't do it, one asks, well, why should you not? They actually studied this pretty well. There's a large Canadian study that showed when you teach self-breast examination to the premenopausal woman, they're, they're, because of the incidence of cystic changes in the breast during the menstrual cycle, that there are so much false positives, so much extra testing, diagnostics, and frankly, unnecessary biopsies. So both quality of life data is not very good for this cohort. And interestingly, if you look at the Gale risk screening model, which uh, is a risk, to, uh, which is a model to determine whether somebody's at high risk, a biopsy pushes you, gives you a point. So if you're in that young category and you, because of uh, no reason whatsoever, had a biopsy and it turned out to be normal, that would give you a point. So it makes no sense. And so self-breast examinations are not recommended. You can teach them, but tell them if they feel something to kind of wait a week or two and check again. Prostate cancer, another thorny subject jumping from one thorny subject to another. The IDSA says nothing about uh, PSA screening, but they do recommend a digital breast <coughs> exam annually uh, to inspect for anal warts, malignancy, and prostate abnormalities. Very generic. Uh, the US PSDF has come down pretty hard on this whole PSA issue, and they recommend not doing it routinely at all. The American College of Physicians and the American Urologic Society has uh, mitigated this and sort of asks people to be a little more nuanced in their thinking and recommendation. And they recommend shared decision making in ages 50 to 69. And definitely no screening in average risk men uh, younger than 50 or men greater than 69 years or those with a life expectancy of 10, less than 10 to 15 years. Uh, it's, it's very funny. The, so today we all get these Dartmouth little highlights. Uh, and one today was Dr. Welch uh, uh, says, do not, do not, you know, get upset or do not penalize physicians for ordering PSA. I think he's, <laughs> he's realizing that his hard line is really actually having some policy issues where Medicare is going to start penalizing physicians, uh, primary care physicians, for ordering a PSA. So, they, you know, on one hand, they want shared decision making, which we should all aspire to and, and, and perfect, and yet, on the other hand, they want to penalize us for doing um, things. So, I, I think this is sort of funny. This has become a really interesting issue um, and continues to be a thorny one for most of us in primary care. I came across this article um, that really, again, you know, everything goes full circle in medicine sometimes. And I came across this article, both the incidence of early stage prostate cancer and the rates of PSA screening have declined and coincide with the 2012 USPF-TF recommendation to omit PSA screening from routine primary care for men. Longer follow-up is needed to see whether these decreases are associated with trends in mortality, right? So we're... Every time we make one of these huge, big policy changes, I think somewhere we need to think, 
this is why sometimes throwing the baby out with the bathwater um, is not a good uh, policy to blindly follow a recommendation, but to think again of translating uh, data to the end of one in front of you. And we'll have to look at this. So what are the non-cancer screening um, things that I want to talk about. Again, relatively new in the, from the USPSTF in the last several years, and not always followed very well, even in general primary care. Um, and with the aging cohort in, in um, uh, HIV that you are all seeing, I think these sorts of screenings are becoming ever so important to think about and have on your radar screen. So abdominal aortic aneurysms, current recommendation from the USPSTF is a single abdominal ultrasound in men age 65 to 75 who have ever smoked. What the heck is ever smoked? Well, they have defined that. It's actually 100 cigarettes in your lifetime. So if they have smoked, I don't know, is it 20 cigarettes in a pack, I think? So five packs in their lifetime, uh, they should be screened at least once. Follow-up, of course, is based on initial findings. And if a 65-year-old is screened, and the abdominal aorta, by the way, the normal size is roughly two, less than three centimeters for sure. So if a 65-year-old has an abdominal aortic size, an ultrasound of less than 2.5 centimeters, they do not need screening ever again. If it is three and above, then screening depends upon how big it, uh, how big it is initially, what's the starting point, um, and, and it varies. You'll see different recommendations from every six months to you know, every three years. Everybody is fully in agreement if they are, if the abdominal aortic aneurysm once screened is greater than 5.5 centimeters, you should uh, refer to vascular surgery. But here's the kicker. Despite, so this, if you see, is screening in men. The USPSTF says there is insufficient evidence. I, I, I didn't put the grading of recommendations because I feel like by now everybody knows the ABCD grades and insufficient evidence. So USPSTF says there's insufficient evidence to advice for or against screening in women. However, the Society for Vascular Surgery, I happen to be quite akin to that society, my husband being a vascular surgeon, uh, uh, does recommend screening for women 65 years or older with a family history who have ever smoked. And actually, Dr. Zvolak, one of our vascular surgeons, is the reason why Medicare will actually pay for this. So Medicare will pay for screening in both men and women with a family history of abdominal aortic aneurysm, because the family history actually is shown to significantly increase your risk. The thing that I didn't put in here, it's something to just, again, keep in the back of your mind, is um, for most aneurysms, they can be watched fairly safely until they get to the 5.5 mark. However, in women, uh, actually, they tend to rupture at a smaller size. So if you have a woman with a screen-positive aneurysm, they need to be watched a little more closely and uh, perhaps referred a little earlier. Cardiovascular screening. Uh, like the cancer, um, there's definitely HIV tropism to endothelial cells, and many studies actually <coughs> small and large, have shown a consistent 1.5-fold increase in the rate of cardiovascular events um, in HIV-positive patients as compared to control populations. Oh. Uh, uh, yes. Yes, they are. Um, I, can, I actually have some articles about that. Yeah. 
um, because that was the original argument was that there are a lot of small studies and they weren't done very well, but actually uh, they say um, a recent study, I think it's a VA cooperative study and uh, one other thing actually is fairly large and does, does show this consistent. So the lipid guidelines, 2013 um, IDSA recommendation, the lipid guidelines was to get a lipid profile, fasting lipid profile, at initiation of care prior to and one month after initiating uh, ART. And I like this. It shows how everything gets dated so quickly. Their last line is, follow NCEAP guidelines for the treatment, uh, which, you know, is long gone since we've moved on to uh, the ACA, AHA, AHA cholesterol guidelines. So these new guidelines in primary care for lipid treatment shows clearly four statin benefit groups. And I'm not going to de deep dive into the pros and cons and all of this. I'll give you, you can, you know, I put in a few things that will tell you which way I swing. But there are four benefit groups, adults with clinical ASCVD. Nobody will argue that these people who already have coronary disease need to be on statin. Adults with an LDL of 190. Uh, adults 45 to 75 years ago who have diabetes. Diabetes, again, another risk factor for, for vascular disease. Um, and then adults who have this pooled cohort estimate uh, risk, 10-year risk, of uh, greater than or equal to 7.5%. And what does the pooled cohort um, estimator take into account? It takes into account these these things, age, sex, race, total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, not LDL, HDL, systolic blood pressure, whether they have hypertension and are on treatment, uh, whether the patient is diabetic, and whether they smoke or not. And here's the wonderful thing, which I'm not expecting you to even care or pay attention to. Basically, the top three things, those people absolutely should be on a statin unless they shared decision-making, understand the risks and don't want to be on it, or have a um, side effect on statin. And then the primary prevention guidelines are the ones uh, uh, down there that I, that I mentioned. So how are these guidelines different from the old NCEAP guidelines? Well, for one, we've moved away from the treat too. So it's no longer treat until the LDL is less than... Um, or 70 or whatever the magic number. Cardiologists always like them lower, as low as possible. Um, and it emphasizes this whole concept of intensity of statins. Statins being low intensity, moderate intensity, disease process. Choose one, go with it. And the intensity really is the dose of the statin more than the statin itself. And there are some really interesting articles that show that these new guidelines will really increase the number of people um, that should be treated with, with a statin or not. And there, are, there are some, as you know, who feel the statin should be put in the water and everybody should get it from the day they're born. But yeah, that's, not, that's an argument. So here are the high-density, moderate-intensity, moderate and low-intensity statins that you can sort of pull up anywhere. You don't need to commit any of these to memory. Uh, this is another thing that I was poking around that I'm not sure I really knew. Uh, perhaps many of you know this better than I. Uh, HIV infection and the risk of acute myocardial infarction. Uh, interestingly, HIV infection associated with a 50% increase in AMI beyond that 
explained by recognized risk factors. Would you say this was true in, in patients you've seen? I mean, it's always hard to say. Hard to say. But there's certainly a consensus in the HIV community that this seems real. Right. It really does. I mean, as I said, you know, for some of these things, I put up one article, but I, I had many for each of these. Um, and, and if you really look, uh, rates of MI, by, uh, AMI, acute MI by HIV status in the age group, it really, if you look at that bottom line, the incidence really is significantly higher. It, it's quite impressive. I'm, I'm not sure I kind of internalized that, so I was kind of happy to see this. Um, and so the HIV-related non-traditional cardiac risks, again, as the population ages, they are suspected and obviously will have traditional risk factors, hypertension, cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, family history. Uh, but then they have these additional uh, factors, HIV, ART, especially with the increased older uh, protease inhibitor regimens. Uh, and the feeling is that it is independent. This risk is independent of the effect, lipid effect of ARTs. Now, uh, additionally, there are studies, uh, those first two are sort of interrelated. So if HIV increases your risk and you treat it with ART and the uh, viral load goes down, obviously the risk is, so those are connected in a sense. So most of it is felt uh, to be as a result of the immune response chronic inflammatory theory sort of thing. And then I saw some really interesting articles on this concept of high-risk coronary plaque. And it caught my eye because in primary care, um, it, although it is not recommended, uh, the uh, coronary calcium score uh, for uh, risk of MI in non-HIV um, patients is sort of becoming popular, especially in some familial coronary heart disease syndromes in families who have very, very high lipid uh, lipoprotein little a, um, and uh, LDLs far above 200 and 300. So it just caught my eye. Uh, and they actually have looked at how the guidelines apply to HIV-infected patients with and without subclinical high-risk coronary plaques. So the study done uh, in Boston where they took a cohort of these people of, uh, of HIV patients and they did these um, uh, scans. Uh, basically, plaque gets counted. Actually, the, it stabilizes the plaque. And what is really perhaps worrisome is these high-risk coronary plaques that are not calcified and full of that gooey stuff um, waiting to have platelets adhere to them. So I just thought it was an interesting thing that will probably come to fruition in the next couple of years about looking at HIV patients for these high-risk coronary plaques. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Just, a, just a quick question. Yeah. I think one of the question for you about primary care people and managing people once they make a, a lipid management. You know, in theory, choose your, whether you're high, medium, or low yep. intensity, and then sort of stop paying attention yep. to, to LDL management. Correct. It seems, for a variety of reasons, that seems hard to do in practice. Do, do, are people really doing that? Right. Because I think, and, and again, when we speak, even though there are non-LDL effects of, and, and triglyceride effects of the, of the medications that we prescribe, I would say some of us, some of the time, are looking at LDL subsequently in people on therapy to try to you know, is there anything else we can do to optimize our, our care? But it seems like the guideline doesn't really support that. that. Sure. So uh, that's a good practice kind of question. The truth is, in people who've had 
you know, who have ASCVB and things like that, I think it's really easy. You put them on the highest dose stack and you realize that there's very little you can do beyond that, and so that's okay. In others, um, this is why guidelines are not followed that much. I mean, I have very few patients who are put on a stack who don't want to see what their follow-up is. And so, to be terribly honest, you really have to make a decision of not, so we're taking sort of one risk, but you put the whole story together, and somebody who has multiple risks, um, I can see at least, you know, checking it once or twice, but there is nothing to suggest we should be checking it more. These yearly lipid levels, even on our health maintenance tab, have to go. They make no sense, theoretically, using the data. They really don't. And, but it's hard to do in practice. But it'll come in time. It's kind of the analogy I make is when we first started telling women not to get yearly pap smears, you know, my eight-year-old woman, um, when pap smears came out in 1940 in clinical use, women were told that if they didn't have pap smears, that they were sort of being rude to their families, that it was something so important to do. So to convince them at age 70 or 80 that they didn't need it, the first thing is they think, they're trying to save money for my, for my insurance company or you're you know, not doing something right. But after a while, they realize, we show them the data, that it just doesn't make sense. And slowly, you can change practice over time. But the lipid one hasn't quite got there yet. And I must say, in patients, especially physician patients that I put on lipids, they all come to see their lipids again to make sure that it's gone down. Difficult, thorny subject. How many of you knew, know about PS, uh, PCSK9 inhibitors? I just thought this was kind of interesting. And it's exciting me. It's uh, <laughs> Um, so, PCSK9 um, is an enzyme that is secreted by the liver, and basically what it does is it, um, on the surface of the liver, are these uh, receptors, LDL receptors, and so LDL gets binds to, bind to the receptor, goes intracellularly, destroyed by the lysozyme, and the receptor comes out and sits back on, on the surface of the liver. So, people who have very high PSK9, actually, it destroys the receptor. And so the receptors decrease, and the LDL has no way to get into the liver, and it sits outside in the blood and does bad things. So, and they recognize this by looking at a group of families um, that um, seem to have you know, low LDLs and some that seem to have very, very high LDLs. And they found that mutations in this uh, PCSK9 um, uh, enzyme leads to high serum LDL cholesterol and premature coronary heart disease. And the interesting thing about PCSK9 is because of a negative feedback loop, when you treat somebody with a statin, it drops the LDL, and this probably relates to your question, Peter, but then after a while there's actually a stabilizing effect. And so obviously if, if this is a bad thing to have, then an inhibitor would be a good thing to, to give people um, and so PSK, CSK9 inhibition is a national therapeutic target that is being looked at today. And this, I think, is the next big fun thing on the horizon uh, beyond statins. And in phase one, two, and three trials, um, uh, inhibition with monoclonal antibodies has led to an additional 50 to 60% decrease when used in combination with statins. So it's not no statins. It's in combination with statins. Uh, they seem to be well-tolerated, low incidence of side effects, but of course a very high price. Uh, you know that's coming. 
And right now there are four phase three trials involving large groups of patients. Um, and I, I definitely think we will see this in clinical use in the next several years. So why did I get particularly excited in talking to you about this? Um, the reason being, in November 2015, at the American Heart Association meeting in Florida, um, this person, um, um, Abstract, uh, was one of the finalists, because it's his research, he figured that PSK9C9 is um, elevated in HIV-positive patients. And so we kind of look at his conclusions, um, in addition to traditional risk factors, if PSK9 is truly elevated in HIV-positive patients, then this might actually become an interesting medication um, to look at in the future. So I think in the next several years, we're going to see more of this, but it's, it looks like it's going to change a little bit the face of um, treatment of hypothesis Of why it's elevated in HIV? No, haven't seen that. In fact, the only HIV thing I saw was this particular <laughs> abstract. I was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why. I guess that's why he got the Young Investigator Award. Maybe he'll investigate it more. <laughs> um, winding down. So diabetes guidelines. Um, IDSA 13 says fasting blood sugar or hemoglobin A1C prior to and one to three months after the initiation of ART. Um, and then if uh, diabetic, of course, check uh, hemoglobin A1C Q6 months and has all these goals. Goals hemoglobin A1C less than 7, and of course, attention to all the downstream microvascular effects of diabetes. Uh, these are not new. They're, everybody's okay with these. But here are the new and old uh, USPSTF guidelines and ADA guidelines. So USPSTF, the old guidelines was screen patients for sustained hypertension only. That seemed a bit odd. Uh, the new guidelines revised last year says screen overweight and obese individuals between the ages of 40 and 70. Um, the ADA, American Diabetes Association, said screen everybody over the age of 45 or overweight adults with additional risks. But now the ADA guidelines say basically we should be screening every obese, overweight person at any age because if you have a cutoff like 40 or 45, then you're missing or missing the opportunity to intervene for, say, gestational diabetics or young children who are overweight with diabetes. I mean, we, we are so used to calling everything an epidemic, an epidemic of diabetes, an epidemic of obesity. But the truth is we really are getting fairly large as a country, and so we are seeing more and more diabetes, and pediatricians are seeing more diabetes than ever uh, in their practices. If normal, we screen every three years, and that's another one that's not followed because it just makes no sense. But frankly, you get a blood sugar every time you get a BMET on most patients, and most patients get a BMET for some reason or the other. So um, I think the three years is ridiculous. But I actually put in, the, in these um, slides uh, by um, Dr. Ignuti from Yale uh, things I think diabetes care in primary practice has to be more nuanced than those stringent guidelines, right? So really a patient-centered approach, and you really need to personalize targets. For instance, if the person is younger and has uh, you know, a long lifespan, ability to get care and do all these things, yeah, we can be more stringent with them. But as they age, I mean, should an 80 or a 90-year-old be driven to a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7? Absolutely not. There's tons and tons of data that's showing 
that hypoglycemia kills in the elderly, not hyperglycemia. There's an increase in incidence of dementia, falls, you name it. So uh, controlling somebody so tightly at some point doesn't make sense. So it has to be uh, more nuanced. And this new class of drugs that I want to talk about uh, that I think is uh, useful. So obviously when you are making individual targets for where the hemoglobin A1C should be, you need to take all of this uh, into consideration. So these are the old drugs that I have in the blue oval. You all know them pretty well, the biguanides, metformin, best drug ever, must be the first line uh, for everybody with diabetes. The sulfonylureas, these are the second generation sulfonylureas, <laughs> the thiazolidine dions whose fortunes have gone up and down because of side effects and um, other issues, um, and of course the insulin. And then these I put across because they're sort of, nobody's heard of these. They, they're fairly useless drugs. They drop your hemoglobin A1C by small percentages, not useful. Uh, diabetologists use them periodically, but I find them pretty unhelpful. Uh, but these are the newer classes of medications that I think are useful and everybody should know about. Um, these are the dipeptidylpeptidase inhibitors the uh, glucagon-like peptide agonists, and the sodium glucose transporter um, inhibitors. And the last one is this really exciting um, uh, drug, um, class of drugs that just came out several years ago that are absolutely wonderful. So what are the good things about all of these? Well, actually, let's start with the bad things first. If you look far right, the cost on all of these is very high. So unless somebody has really good insurance, using these drugs are difficult. Uh, but the good things, let's look at the advantages for a moment. Most of these are weight neutral or weight loss, which is a really important thing both in HIV care as well as, as various our, just our overweight population. So those are really good. The other really important thing is no hypoglycemia. None of these classes of drugs cause somebody's much to go low. Again, as the population ages, a good thing for them not to have hypoglycemia. Uh, the uh, sodium glucose uh, transporter inhibitors are a really neat uh, class of drugs. Again, they, they found a, a, a group of families that seem to have a lot of sugar in their urine and no diabetes, or a propensity to be uh, safe from diabetes in a sense. Um, and so they looked at this, and these, these people just excrete a lot of the blood sugar uh, instead of reabsorbing it in the tubules. So it's a great drug because it can be used at all stages. Because if you look at the other drugs, they're all dependent on insulin or do something to insulin. They either make you more, your liver, muscle, et cetera, more sensitive to insulin, a la metformin, or uh, these other drugs that increase insulin and decrease glucagon. But SGLT2 does it completely differently, and so it can be used at all stages of diabetes, another sort of really good thing to keep in mind. But what, what are the bad things uh, from especially an IV point of view? Because it does not reabsorb glucose, it lets it go into the urine and pulls a lot of fluid along with it. So lots of polyuria, uh, um, increased incidence of GU infections, um, sometimes volume depletion because of the fact that it draws out water and actually helps uh, blood pressure. So it usually, in somebody with bad blood pressure, can use it a la a diuretic. Um, but, but those are the ones. And it increases LDL a little bit. Not enough to make it unhelpful, but something to keep in mind in a certain class of patient. So here are they, as I said, really, really good. And, and the other nice thing they do is they drop the hemoglobin A1C by close to one 
that's really useful. Uh, can be used at any stage within any combination, which is really wonderful. So of all the drugs that I showed you, these are the oral drugs. Um, the metformin, sulfonylureas, thiazolidinediones, the uh, dipeptidylpeptidase uh, inhibitors, and the SGLT inhibitors. So just very, very quickly, uh, monotherapy, everybody starts off with metformin. If you have to add a second drug, the bottom line is you can basically add anything. There is no real rule. This is not really an algorithm. Look at the individual patients, see where they would benefit with each one of these. Like I said, weight gain, weight loss, that sort of thing. Um, and, and the reason I sort of had the little U there with the blue arrow is to say that those are sort of the weight neutral ones, so I prefer to use those instead of the others, although sometimes cost issues makes you go with one of the others instead. Uh, once you get to three drugs, you can do anything pretty much. Any combination goes. Um, but the reason that STAR is there is that if you're starting to give people insulin, uh, basal insulin, real-time insulin, there's lots of new studies that showing actually giving a once-a-day basal insulin, <coughs> a glucagon-like uh, peptide agonist, actually works better than giving basal in meal time. So I think that's the new thing on the horizon in primary care. Think about a basal and a GLP-1 rather than, a, and GLP-1s are injectable, so yeah, you have to inject, but it's once a day rather than meal time. Last, um, squeezing it in there, if you're tired, tell me, because it's at um, 12, 1.30. But osteoporosis and osteonecrosis, the two big bone things in HIV, I won't be talking about osteonecrosis. Uh, osteoporosis, again, traditional risk factors that go for everybody, um, hypogonadism, smoking, alcohol, inactivity, low BMI, low vitamin D. But what's special about HIV, we know that ART, especially PIs and tenofovir, but maybe even others, uh, chronic immune activation and malabsorption are additional risk factors that make your patients much, much more likely to lose bone uh, than the general population. And of course, all the secondary causes um, are there. So what is the recommendation? Recommendation is a little bit different between uh, the IDSA for HIV population and, and the uh, general uh, primary care population. And I kind of agree with this because of those additional risk factors. So in the HIV population, it's screening men and women greater than 50. There's fairly decent evidence that that is useful. Whereas the USPSTF says for the average risk person, um, only recommended screening in women above 65 with risks other than menopause. So obviously at 65, you're menopausal, but risks other than menopause. Um, and, uh, and there's actually no official recommendation for screening in women, I mean, sorry, in men. Although the uh, National Osteoporosis Foundation says both men and women regardless of risk. So once you get the bone scan and the T-score is less than negative 2.5, or they have a fragility fracture. Fragility fracture meaning a fracture without sort of big trauma, okay, falling from sort of standing height and such. Once they have one, you really should treat. That's, that's a given. But what if they are not so low? What if they're in that intermediate range between uh, 1 .5, negative 1.5 and negative 2.5? Then, I think, really useful to use this FRAX risk calculator. Does anybody use that? Yeah, it, it really is quite simple. 
a nice little tool. You have to actually pick uh, North America, U.S., um, and it really, in the U.S., has been shown that it is cost-effective to treat if they have a 3% hip fracture or 20% composite rate fracture based on your calculation on the fracture score. So I, I think this is something that we should be doing. Don't worry about this. It, it's there in your slides if you want to look at it. Treatment options, uh, bisphosphonates, which is Fosamax, and others, uh, either weekly or annually for five years. And then after five years for the bisphosphonates, everybody now agrees it's a good idea to give people a holiday. Uh, teriparatide, which is recombinant PTH. The big difference in this one is it actually builds back bone, uh, where the others just slow loss of bone. So for teriparatide, the recommendation is every uh, up to two years and then followed by a bisphosphonate. So they should get Fosmax. And then, of course, the latest, the monoclonal antibodies against rank, rank ligand. Um, and both teriparatide and denosumab or prolia are for severe osteoporosis. So for most patients, this is not really an option we should be thinking about, uh, but bisphosphonates are. And when you do, then repeat DEXA scan in two years. So that whirlwind. <laughs> the summary is, the good news is that HIV is now a chronic disease, yay. <laughs> uh, for screening HIV, the aging population and the cumulative traditional and non-traditional risks makes your job particularly hard because you've got to keep all these in mind uh, when, when talking to patients. Um, and the fact that whenever these screening recommendations come out, that's great, but you know, whatever is new needs to be kept in mind, and sometimes it's really hard to keep up with all the data. And that as the patient population ages in geriatrics, we talk about the Beers criteria of drug interactions, and by golly, for you guys, it's definitely an issue, so keeping all of those in mind is key. All the references, if you get a slide, just click on them and there they are, and then I have tons more if necessary. And since most of you haven't seen my family, when we came here, came back here, I should say, um, uh, Christopher, uh, our youngest in the, uh, um, to the left there, or your left, was four months old. And now he's in college in UCSC in California, so time really flies. Thank you all for being patient and people who need to go, yes. I think we have a room though, so for those who have questions. Sure. Um, and just come up and chat or whatever. Excellent. Yes, yes. I love those. Surgeons have uh, our hospital is now committed to um, with Hopkins and Weller to only do provide surgeries if we have a high enough volume and uh, yeah, that's sort of the practice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are we HIV doctors good enough at screening to be doing this? Should we continue our well-intentioned primary care specialty practices? Or are we at risk of you know, failing to keep up with, say, CT screening, some of the newer ones? This is a provocative question, and like everything, there is some gray here. Um, you know, I think early on the epidemic, um, when we were sort of not sure, and there's so many other things going on, I think it was reasonable for IV doctors to take on this. I actually think it's becoming difficult. I think the, the uh, uh, 
suggestions are becoming more nuanced. And I think as this becomes more and more chronic disease, I do think this should be a shared task. Or at least have the electronic record help you in a huge way, which clearly is not the case now. There is no way even we can remember such things. Again, that's why I said I like doing this. It allows me to kind of look a little bit more at things that I probably wouldn't have. I don't see how you can do this effectively and well without some other help. And do all the other things you did. I mean, remember, none of this. I mean, I just picked some things that I thought were slightly out of your realm. So, I, yeah, this is not Certainly, when you get to therapeutics for some of this stuff, it's yeah, like absolutely. I incur the antibiotics. Uh, absolutely. And why would you? I mean, so, I mean, there's so much, uh, you so much to keep abreast of that there's just no way we can do this. Not alone. Not alone is my answer to that. And perhaps time to either shore up the resources or switch over. But then when you talk about switching over, the reason I'm not just saying yay is, I mean, look at our practices. Yeah. We don't have the ability, time, and skills to do this either. I mean, half of these things, so I looked at a really good article this month, this week, uh, Journal of General and General Medicine. So, some of the ones, the lung screening, abdominal, relatively new to some ones, but some of them are old, right? Um, breast cancer, so <coughs> and you look at how many primary care practitioners are actually following the recommendations. Mm, not so much. Not so much. And some are because of patient choices and all of that, but some of it is just hard to keep up. And, and the other thing is all these different uh, societies when they come up with recommendations, they are so annoying. They all sort of stagger them, you know, like five years. Is it the USPS at 64, or is it 65, or is it 50, and who will pay for it? And frustrating. Anyway, but that's what makes it fun. <laughs> that's why I'm still in business. Just uh, if you if you want these slides, we can uh, send them as a PDF to you. Oh yeah, so I, I send it to Betsy, so yeah. for sure yeah. you can look yeah. at them and you know some of those cool charts are actually kind of nice since I've already distilled the data in my phone, just use it. Um, and then the references I use, I actually kept the links so you can just keep on. So, Any other questions? Absolutely. Thank you.